I'm reading from Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the very word of God. This morning, our goal is to conclude the sermon theme that we've had for the past year before we begin next week our annual sermon series called Crosstown Basics and then announce a new theme for the next sermon year during Labor Day weekend. So for the past year, um, probably haven't always made this uh, as plain as we should, but for the past year, we've had a theme for all of the sermons And that theme has been the life-giving love of God. I preached a sermon with that title on September 4th last year. And the main point that I was trying to make in that message is that unless we come to understand the love of God, we will not be able to draw from its life-giving power. Unless we come to understand the love of God, we will not be able to draw from its life-giving power. Now, the reason that this was uh, a a burden on my heart for us as a church is that the problem that many of us Christians have is that we are dreadfully weak in our understanding of the love of God. There are all kinds of reasons for this, not the least of which is the word understand when we are talking about something like love. Do you understand how much your husband or wife loves you? Do you understand, um, does your child rather understand how much you love them? We are not talking here about something that requires merely our minds, as if love can be understood in the same way that we understand math. 
or how we are to do our jobs. To understand love, we need stories and poems as much as, or perhaps more than, we need lectures and instructions. So what am I doing here this morning? We've spent a lot of time over the past year, therefore, studying Israel's story. Our main text for that has been the book of Ezekiel, just one of the ways of getting at the theme of the love of God found, understood in the story. We also spent a significant amount of time in one of the great biblical poems, the Song of Songs, and we did that for the exact same reason. So how are we doing as a church? Are we coming to understand the love of God? Nothing is more powerful. Nothing is more life-changing. And what would it be like for us as a church if we were marked by a deep knowledge, understanding of God's love for us? Nothing could make us a more credible gospel community than to be a community marked by an understanding of the love of God. So today, as we bring this sermon year to a close, I've chosen this text partly because of the appearance of God's love in verse 20. Let's look at that verse again. The Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. What led to Paul writing that beautiful verse in this letter to the Galatians? I want you to notice that this verse comes in the context of a story. Story found in verses 11 to 14. And I'd like us to ask the question, what is the connection between the story in verses 11 to 14 and the love of God? How can the story that we read about here help us, here's our word again, understand the love of God better? What we can see in this passage is that anyone who receives the love of God in Christ is committed to a lifetime of love through Christ toward others, and especially toward other Christians. Anyone who receives or understands or has the knowledge of the love of God in Christ is committed to a lifetime of love through Christ toward others and especially toward other Christians. In other words, there are massive social dimensions to our justification in Christ. To be a Christian does not just change our destiny. It necessarily changes our disposition toward one another. As we grow in our understanding of the love of God, here's what we should notice. We find ourselves first freed to be authentic. Since this love has secured for us, second, an identity 
a new identity that radically changes and lastly, third, transforms us. I want to speak to you this morning on these three aspects or results or markers of our growing knowledge of the love of God in Christ. Authenticity, identity, and transformation. Authenticity, identity, transformation. So let's talk first about authenticity. To be authentic means to be true to yourself. No pretending. Genuine love will not last where there is no authenticity. And Christians who come to understand the love that God has for us ought to be the most authentic people on the planet. No pretending. No falsity. If we have been loved by God in Christ, we are free to be our true selves. But now here's the problem. That's probably not what most people think of Christians today. And in verses 11 to 14, we find this is not a new thing. Christians have always found themselves struggling to live authentic lives in Christ. In verses 11 to 14, we hear about a story in which there was, well, a little confrontation. I think the British would say a little row between two of the most prominent apostles in the Bible, the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. What was it like when these two guys went at it face to face? Well, here's the story. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, the Apostle Paul speaking, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Whoa. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's the story in short. The Apostle Paul confronts Peter publicly, accusing him of being inauthentic, of acting like a hypocrite. Peter was doing one thing until somebody showed up, and then Peter begins to act in a completely opposite manner. Now, what's the big deal here? Now, for one thing, Paul notes at the end of verse 13 that Peter's hypocrisy had far-reaching effects the reason that he confronts him publicly. Look what it says. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So because of Peter's hypocrisy, a whole bunch of other people followed right along. And I wonder how aware of this Peter was. I wonder how aware of this you and I are. Are we aware of how much our actions have an influence on others? Peter's hypocrisy, it says, even led Barnabas astray. Now, this requires you, of course, to have a little bit of Bible knowledge about who Barnabas is. 
His real name was not Barnabas. That's a nickname, right? His real name was Joseph. But the apostles started calling him Barnabas. The name means son of encouragement, son of exhortation. When you met Barnabas, this was the most authentic person in the congregation. When you met Barnabas, you knew you were going to meet the real deal. No pretending with this guy. But here, Peter's actions have led even Barnabas to act like a hypocrite. And even more serious than all of that, even more serious than the fact that Peter's actions have influenced all the other Jewish Christians, even more serious the fact that even Barnabas begins to act like a hypocrite. Here's what Paul says. His actions, verse 14, are out of step with the truth of the gospel. What Peter and all the rest did here on this occasion was serious enough that Paul says it is a contradiction to the gospel message. Just think of the damage that has come to the Christian faith. When you hear in the news of another Christian leader shown to be the hypocrite that he has been all along, acting in ways that everyone knows is out of step with the Christian message that is proclaimed, out of step with the ways of Jesus. This is a big deal. It causes real damage to the witness of the Christian faith. So I'm asking myself a question. Why, why, Peter? Why did you commit this kind of hypocrisy? Now, we are surely all hypocrites. Let's just put that on the table. We all find plenty of places in our lives where we are out of step with the truth that we proclaim. Part of this is simply due to the fact that we still wrestle with the temptations of sin. It's not easy to live free even when you are. But what we're talking about here is not just a momentary lapse of faith. It is the apparent calculation to act in a certain way. Verse 12 makes it plain that Peter knew better. He acted, or he ate with the Gentiles on one occasion deliberately and, again, a little Bible knowledge, he does it with theological conviction and understanding that he's not just permitted to eat meals with Gentiles, but obligated to do so as a follower of Jesus. Acts chapter 10 tells us the story that of all of the Jewish Christians to first come to this understanding, it's Peter. He knows that his eating with the Gentiles is not just allowable, but mandatory. Arise, Peter. Kill and eat. The divisions that have separated Jews and Gentiles have been torn down and can be allowed to stand no longer. And yet, here, when a certain group of people arrived, he makes a similarly calculated decision to act in a way that would communicate that he would never do such a thing. Now, why? Why would Peter do this? Verse 12 says that it was because he feared the circumcision party. Now, th this is probably not the same group as the certain men who came from James stated earlier in the verse. Richard Longnecker in his commentary on Galatians explains 
that the ones from James refers to Christian Jews. But the circumcision, circumcision party is a reference in Paul to non-Christian Jews. Why was Peter afraid of non-Christian Jews? It was because of the historical situation at this time back in Jerusalem, where this delegation from James had come from. You see, in the middle of the first century, a rising tide of Jewish nationalism spelled a rising tide of antagonism toward any Jew, Christian or not, who sympathized with Gentiles. The more that Jewish Christians blurred all distinctions between themselves and Gentiles, this was a perceived threat to Jewish exceptionalism and a danger to their political aspirations. So, we might surmise then that Peter acted this way, guess what? Out of love, at least his calculation. Out of love for his Jewish visitors. Here I've got these Jewish Christians coming in. They're from Jerusalem. And if they are known to associate with us who associate with Gentiles, this could put them in danger of their lives when they get back home. It will raise the suspicions and hostilities of other Jews back in Jerusalem. After all, the volatile political situation back home could mean that if Peter just goes right along doing what he is theologically convinced he's supposed to do, it could possibly mean a matter of life or death for Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Do you see the dilemma? In other words, it seems that Peter thought he was doing the loving thing for Jewish Christians by doing the exact opposite thing that he was previously doing out of love for Gentile Christians. I can imagine him saying, I don't want to cause offense. I don't want to make anybody stumble. But of course, that's exactly what he did, as verse 13 says. Now, I feel for Peter. He must have felt like he was in an impossible situation. To show love to one group would feel like to another group the complete opposite. You ever been in a dilemma like that? These are the kinds of dilemmas that we, even in our very day, sometimes find ourselves in. And, and from one perspective, it seemed like Peter made the right call here. His actions might make the Gentile Christians feel like they were second-class citizens of God's kingdom, but to not act this way might have cost some Jewish Christians their lives. So, Gentile Christians, just put up with it for a minute. I'm trying to save lives here. The only problem is the Apostle Paul apparently did not feel for Peter too much. He confronts him face-to-face, -face, publicly. And so I'm asking another question. Come on, Paul. Is this really such a big deal? You bet it is. The authenticity of the gospel is on the line here. That's what Paul's saying. How so? Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Making Gentile Christians feel second class 
as if they did not quite fully belong in the real family of God, not unless, of course, they would start to live like Jews. This is to run in the opposite direction of the Christian gospel. It's a matter of authenticity. So Paul goes on to explain this in the next two verses, verses 15 to 16. And what he talks about here is Christian identity. If we're going to live authentically as people who are loved by God's own son, then we have to understand what it is that makes up our Christian identity. Nothing, listen to me, absolutely nothing. No exceptions, no qualifications, nothing must be allowed to become the identifier of Christian identity, save this, faith in Jesus the Messiah. No qualifications. Are you prepared to say that? This and this alone is what identifies a person as a member of the people of God. That's the Christian claim. I want you to notice now in verses 15 to 16, three times in these two verses, Paul uses the word justification. Um, By the way, most scholars will say that Galatians is probably the, the first of the biblical letters that Paul wrote. So the very first time that Paul talks about justification by faith in Christ is right here in this context of this story. Now, many Christians are trained to hear the word justification and think, oh, we're talking about my own personal relationship to God. To be justified means to be counted or accepted as righteous before God. True enough. However, I want you to notice, do you see it? That Paul uses this word for the first time in all of his letters. He uses the word right here precisely because of its social dimensions. Precisely because to be justified has all sorts of ramifications for relationships with others. If one is accepted as righteous by God, then he or she must also be accepted as righteous by all the other justified ones. So as one Jew speaking to another Jew, Paul can essentially say to Peter, now look, now look, Peter. You know that you and I are not Gentile sinners. Now to speak of Gentiles like that probably reflects Jewish perspectives on the Gentiles as the unclean ones, right? Paul here, though, is speaking ironically. In spite of the fact that we are Jews by birth, Paul is explaining, we know. Peter, you know. Remember Acts 10? Peter, you know that we are not counted righteous. We are not numbered among the people of God by works of the law. Now, works of the law here does not refer to attempts by Jews to somehow merit God's favor by doing good deeds. The Jewish faith, the entire Jewish faith, was based on an understanding that God's relationship with them was covenantal. It was unilateral. 
Paul, or God says in Deuteronomy, it was not because you were more numerous than anyone else. It's not because you were inherently special. It was simply because I loved you. That's what made you my people. So works of the law was not within Judaism some sort of attempt to enter into the people of God. They knew that their relationship with God was completely based upon what we would call grace. Works of the law then were the deeds or actions that the law required of them as members of God's family, not in order to become members of God's family. So although in the first century there were various Jewish interpretations about what the law required of them as members of God's family, there were two things that all Jews agreed upon. Two clear lines of demarcation that marked them out as Jewish believers versus those Gentile sinners. Two make or break issues, we might say, of Jewish identity. One of them was the issue of, just, uh, sorry, of circumcision, which Paul has addressed in the first part of Galatians 2. We didn't read that, but here's the second one. The other one had to do with food laws. Two things. Of all the different debates within Judaism in the first century about works of the law, there's two that like we all agree on. If you're going to be Jewish, circumcision, necessity, food laws, absolutely. Now, notice here, Paul has no qualms with Jewish Christians acting like Jews. He has no problem with Jewish Christians and circumcision. He has no problem with Jewish Christians and keeping kosher, unless and until it begins to function as some sort of a line separating them from Gentile Christians and putting the latter in second-class territory. At that point, at that point, these works of the law have to go as markers of identity for who truly belongs in the family of God. Why? Why is this? It's because the Christian gospel has a completely different line of demarcation. The righteous ones, the justified ones, those who would be counted among the people of God, those who in the end would be vindicated by the creator God when he chooses to act decisively in history, they would be identified with a different marker. And no other marker could be in its place. Verse 16 tells us what that identification would be. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's a phrase that may also be translated the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, emphasizing that it is Christ's own obedient faithfulness to God that is the basis for our justification. Do not hear faith in Christ as some sort of effort or work on your part. It is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that marks us out. One's own act of faith in Christ is explicit. It's mentioned next. So we also, Paul says in verse 16, have believed in Christ Jesus. Emphasizing that even us as Jewish Christians have to be identified as God's people, as the righteous ones, in only one way. Only one marker. Faith in Christ. Faith in the one who is faithful 
on our behalf. He then says this, by works of the law, no one will be justified. The events of Christ's life, death, resurrection, have changed the whole picture of who is to be counted among the true people of God and on what basis. It is those who trust in Christ and on the basis of Jesus' own faithfulness to God in our place. Did you hear that? The true people of God will be marked, will be identified in only one way. Those who trust in Christ and on the basis of Jesus' own faithfulness to God in our place. That's it. The distinction between Jew and Gentile as covenant members has now been obliterated by the power of a new creation that has come in Jesus. Now, hear what this means. It means that justification refers not only to how one gets into the family of God, of who will be vindicated at final judgment, it also refers to how one is identified as God's people in the meantime. Justification refers not just to how one gets in, but how one is marked. And that means it cannot help but have social dimensions. Salvation is not just a matter of one's relationship with God. It is that. Absolutely it is that. But it necessarily is also a matter of one's relationship with the rest of God's family. You claim to be a Christian in historic terms and theological terms. That means you are part of a new family. You don't just have a relationship with God that we can talk about and explain. You have a relationship with the rest of God's people who are marked in the same way. So, we, even today, must remain vigilant to believe in justification by faith, by being ever on our guard against the temptation to mark out justification some other way. Can I just say it to you this way, church? If this was a problem that even Peter struggled to live out, you're going to struggle to live it out. You just look at this story and be like, well, Peter, you're probably tempted in much the same way. So here we go. There's nothing wrong with having Christian convictions. But do not make those convictions a litmus test of Christian identity for everyone else. There's nothing wrong... Some of you are just like, okay, all right, here we go. There's nothing wrong with having political perspectives. But we must be wary of making it sound as if all Christians must share those same perspectives. I'm still not getting you stirred up. It is certainly not wrong to be all the other things that most of us are, Western American Christians who live in Oklahoma. Just remember that many of the ways that we think and the values that we hold come from our Western American history, and these must never be confused with our biblical Christian history. 
The two are not identical, even if there are places where they overlap. So let us be sure that we know our true identity in Christ. And then let us be sure that we treat all who are in Christ as equal members of the same family. Now, all of this talk about justification by faith in Christ alone sounds nice, but here's the thing. Does it make a difference? Does it really make a difference? And I'm asking, does it make a social difference? For us to claim that we have this new identity in Christ and then to live authentically in this identity, what difference does that make in the world that we live in today? For us to claim that we have a new identity in Christ, that we are counted among the righteous ones, but then if we go on living the same way that we always have, well, clearly, that is not good news for the world. Remember, it is Paul here, the great apostle of grace. It is Paul who is concerned with behavior in this passage. It's Paul who's saying, you, you, say, you're, you say you're justified by faith in Christ, and then this aspect of your life is out of line? You think that's not a big deal? It's the apostle Paul who says it's a big deal. He's the one who calls out Peter for crying out loud, for behavior that is out of line with the gospel. So now Paul wants to show us at the end of this passage how transformation takes place when we seek to be justified by faith in Christ alone. Here's how transformation happens. Yes, let's be clear. You are a Christian simply by, you come into and you are marked by a member of the people of God simply by believing, trusting, relying on the one who is faithful in your place. But that message, that faith, it, it will transform your life. It will make a difference. And here's how it works. Follow Paul's reasoning here. Verse 17 Paul deals with a common objection. Seems like he got this over and over and over again. He says, if we seek to be justified in Christ alone, would that make Christ culpable for our ongoing sin? I mean, think of it like this. If we say that we are the people of God simply because we worship Jesus, we believe in Jesus, then would that effectively make Jesus responsible for the sins that we Christians continue to commit? Now, of course, the objection comes with its own assertion. We need clear boundary lines, the argument would say, between what true Christians do and don't do so that we can say, well, those people, are not real Christians because they do this or they do that. But Paul's response here is just as emphatic as his response is in the letter to the Romans. No way, certainly not. God forbid. In verse 18, he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, namely the law as a boundary marker, I prove myself rather than Christ." to be the transgressor. In other words, he says, 
The whole argument of the Christian gospel depends on the inseparable reality of faith in Christ. If a person is counted as righteous only by faith in Christ, then to start requiring, suggesting that there's other identifiers for righteousness would ruin the whole message, tear the whole thing down. As Paul says at the end of our passage in verse 21, Christ then would have died for no purpose if righteousness were through the law. If anything else becomes the identifier, the marker of true people of God, true justification, true righteousness, if anything else were to stand in place of faith in Christ alone, then the entire message of Christianity is gone. This is worth fighting for. But remember that there's a real and practical problem that is in view here. Remember back to the beginning of our story? Don't you feel for Peter? He's caught in this impossible situation. He can't seem to act in a way that's going to be love to everyone. So what do I do? All these Gentiles who are professing faith in Christ, Peter might say, Paul, don't you know that they're, they're, they're pagans? They're idolaters. They're godless. They're sinners. I mean, they do crazy things, these Gentiles. They are unclean. If we are going to start hanging out with them and calling them brothers and sisters, then surely we are right to say, hey, look, you got to be a little more holy like us. Then you'll really be in. And what Paul does not do here is deny the importance of Gentiles becoming less idolatrous, less godless. Again, remember, he is concerned about Christian morality and behavior. He's confronting Peter for that very reason. So we should all care about that. We should all care about increasing in our holiness and our Devotion to God in Christ. All that matters. Of course it does. Justification by faith alone does not mean there are no social implications. On the contrary. We simply do not know what Paul means by justification by faith if we take it only as a reference to one's moral standing before God. If that's all it means, then you miss the whole point of what he's saying. Because what Paul is talking about in verses 17 to 21 are the implications of justification by Christ for the lifestyle of Jew and Gentile believers. And the way he makes his point is by his own testimony. See, by now it should be clear where the problems lie. Holy like us presumes that we are the good ones. That since we are Christians, our own preferences and inclinations must always be righteous. I profess faith in Christ, and this is who I vote for, as if those two things clearly go together. It's those other people who say they're believers in Christ and vote that way. Now, they're the, they're the pagans. They're the Gentiles. They're the messed up ones. Paul says, okay, wait just a moment. Let me tell you what happened to me. 
Verses 19 and 20 summarize Paul's story and the radical transformation that he found in Christ. First, Paul says, in Christ he experienced death. When Christ was crucified, he says, I was crucified with him. So much for those Gentile sinners who deserve death. I mean, no one, no one was more zealous for God than Paul, and yet he and his zeal had to die. Then Paul says that in Christ he has experienced a resurrection. When Christ rose, I rose with him. Though clearly this means that the only way I'm now alive is not my own life. It's the life of Christ. It's no longer I who says who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be a Christian means you have to forfeit, give up your own way of living. Yes, even your living for God in order to live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This, in a nutshell, is what Christian baptism means. And it's why Christian baptism is required. Baptism signifies that through faith in Christ, his death and his resurrection are now also ours. That's what it means to be saved. It means we have been united to the faithful one. It means his life is now our life. We forfeit, we give up our lives for his. But being united to Christ also means, as we've already seen, that we are united to the rest of his people who are also identified the same way that we are, by faith. By the way, that is why commitment to God's people, to his church, is also required for all Christians. To put up barriers between Christians is to tear down the only hope that we have for salvation in the first place. And that is not a small problem. It calls for open rebuke. So if you are a Christian, then know that you are one only because you've been loved by the Son of God who gave himself up for you. That is who you are. The love of God has given you life. Now, let this same love transform your life as a member of a new family, the people of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have attempted in the last year to ponder a little bit more deeply, the life-giving love of God. I pray that our testimony, our story will be the same as the Apostle Paul's was right here in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If even the most zealous God worshiper on the planet, the Apostle Paul, had to be crucified with Christ, 
that what else might we need to lay before you this morning? That thing that we believe or that action we do or those actions we don't do or those things we don't believe that we have allowed to become markers of identification, that we've allowed to separate us from the rest of your people who simply cry out to the Son of God who loved them, those things need to die. Forgive us, O Lord, for even thinking right now that, well, others have those kinds of markers. I don't. If the Apostle Peter was tempted in this way, in, in fact, apparently felt at times that he had no other option, no other way that he could operate, no other way to express love, then I'm sure all of us in this room this morning find ourselves in similar positions. What do we do? We remember who we are in Christ. We lay our lives down. We know that to be justified by faith in Christ means that we are now part of a new community, God's global family. And we fight for this unity together. And Lord, I, I just pray on behalf, if I could do so, if I could be so bold to do so, I pray on behalf Of our, for our own church and for so many other churches that find ourselves at times tempted to allow there to be disunity among the churches of God in Christ for the sake of some other allegiance, some other identifier. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to draw from the life-giving love of God. More challenges are yet to come, undoubtedly. But the answer is never that far away. We come to you, Lord Jesus. You are our life. You are the life of the world. Teach us to live as people who are loved, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.